Well, dear congregation, I ask you now to please turn your very prayerful attention to that passage of God's holy word that I read to you in your hearing there in 2 Kings and the 21st chapter. And we meet this morning with the subject here of Manasseh. Of course, the subject is the Lord and the Lord's dealings with Manasseh. We go in our mind's eye to the context just to consider briefly the context, what has happened so far in the last few chapters. Remember chapter 19 and then chapter 20. What is the surrounding text? Well, we saw a very godly king, Hezekiah, in the midst of a very dark time. Israel had recently fallen to the Assyrian army, and they were led away forever, disseminated into the land there, of Samaria, but also many of them taken away into Assyria, into foreign cities, and foreigners were brought into that land which was called Samaria. Once formerly Israel was Israel no more. Samaria being the capital of Israel in the north where the ten tribes were, were no more. Speak of the ten lost tribes of Israel. So in the days of our Lord Jesus, when he met with a woman at the well there in John 4, he said concerning the people there of Samaria, he said, you worship that which you know not. They were a people who no longer knew God, no longer knew the favor of God. There was only Judah in the south and little Benjamin with Judah from whence the Savior would come. Jesus Christ would be born of the tribe of Judah as was prophesied, and God is keeping Judah in the south. And then the days were dark, weren't they? Israel was guilty of sin, so was Judah. But God raised up a standard. God raised up a godly king in Judah, Hezekiah, in the midst of a very dark time. And they were on the brink of destruction. Remember when Assyria came and Sennacherib, he, uh, with all of his blustering, threatened to utterly reduce Judah to nothing, to overthrow Jerusalem. But Hezekiah with the people stood firm, and they trusted in the Lord. And in one night, the Lord destroyed 185,000 of the Assyrian army. In one night, the angel of the Lord completely brought death so that Sennacherib and the remainder of his army went away, as it were, humbled. And then the Lord destroyed Sennacherib by allowing his sons to kill him in his own temple. It was a false temple to a false god. My, how the Lord works. And uh, the Lord indeed helped Hezekiah and the people. But remember Hezekiah, even during that time, he fell, as we thought last week in chapter 20, he fell ill. And the Lord told him that he was so ill that he was going to die. But he cried out unto the Lord, and the Lord gave him 15 further years. He said to him, get your house in order. It seems from the text that he had no children yet. And then he was to have a son. And that son, Manasseh, 
would rule and reign in his stead. What would happen if indeed Hezekiah had no offspring? Well, no Messiah would come. No Savior would come into the world. We read there, didn't we, from Matthew chapter 1 of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we see even this ungodly king was in that line of the Savior. Of course, the Lord Jesus was born of a virgin. Not of man, but he would be of this line. And God is preserving this little nation, Judah, until the coming of the king, the great king, the eternal king, God only wise, Jesus Christ. So that's the surrounding context to this chapter. God's deliverance to Judah. But in judgment, great judgment, the Lord completely, as we read in Jeremiah, giving Israel a bill of divorcement to Israel so that they would never be a nation again, so that they would never have a king again. Hoshea being the very last king of Israel. And now Judah, with Hezekiah, Hezekiah died. But shockingly, we read of this son of Hezekiah, Manasseh, and we would have to say what an awful king he was. We read of the things that he did. Now, the, the amazing thing is that he is the king of the longest reign in all of even Judah and even Israel. David was the king who reigned the longest over Israel and Judah. It was 40 years. But Manasseh, he reigns 55 years. And he reigns as a wicked king. And there are a number of lessons for us to glean here this morning. Firstly, about the severity of God and then God's grace. God's amazing grace. And then how God also deals with a nation. There's so many lessons and things for us to apply this morning. Now, the first thing we'll see is sin abounding. And we see it in Manasseh. Notice from verses 1 to 2, we have a summary of the life of the son of Hezekiah, Manasseh, the longest, as I said, reigning king over Judah some 55 years. And we read, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign and reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hepzibah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, after the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. What could we put over these verses? We could say that his reign was very evil, wicked. And you notice something else here. It says, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's not, my dear friends, that some things God doesn't see. But this is a... Timely reminder that God sees everything. All things are known by God. There's nothing hidden we read from the eyes of him with whom we have to do. But what he did, and evil as it was, was in the sight of the Lord. 
And we must never think that God doesn't notice things. Everything in your life and in my life is in the sight of God. Never forget that. But this is a reminder that the Lord was seeing it. All that was going on. And we read here that his sin was like the abominations of the heathen, notice, who the Lord cast out. Remember, it was Israel that God brought into this land of the Canaanites, which where Judah now were, and Israel in the north formerly, that God was judging those nations. And he said, destroy them because of those heathen practices, because of those evil, evil misrepresentations of the true and the living God. And he did that which was like the abominations of the heathen who the Lord cast out. And the Lord is about to cast Judah out here. We know that in the year 586 BC, they will be sent for some 70 years into Babylon. And as we'll see later on, Manasseh is sent into Babylon himself as part of a judgment. The Lord brought him back mercifully. And the Lord did bring back Judah and Jerusalem, who were sent to Babylon many years later in his mercy. How merciful the Lord is. So firstly, sin abounding, and we see it here. Notice, there's a, first of all, there's a deliberate reversal of all, think of it, the godly reforms that his father, Hezekiah, had done. Notice verse 3, for he built up again the high places. Remember, which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. What were those high places? Places that there was worship to God that God had forbidden, and forbidden for good reason. Because men would invent their own kinds of worship in those places. And it's again, it's a reminder of what we believe as a church, the Bible teaches what we call the regulative principle. When we come into worship here, we don't believe, you know, maybe you're a visitor here today. And maybe you've heard this and maybe you're going to leave with this thought in your mind. Well, that's a different style of worship. Well, my friends, the Bible doesn't speak about styles of worship. The Bible tells us, God says, this is how you worship me. There's no such thing as a style of worship. We worship the way God has said. And he says he is to be had with reverence and in truth. And he tells us in his word to have no false or graven images. That's why we don't have a cross. That's why we don't have angels and statues and stained glass windows. Those things are forbidden, as we will see in God's word. You misrepresent God. It's a terrible thing. And it will bring down, down God's judgment upon the church and upon even a nation, as we will see. So what does he do? He builds up again these high places round about Jerusalem and Judah, which Hezekiah's father had destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal. Now, Baal was a false god, as we've seen. There's no such thing as Baal. 
But he, he raised them up again and made a grove, as did Ahab, king of Israel. Ahab was severely judged, a former king, wasn't he, of Israel in the north. And he, he's doing exactly what these kings had done and had been judged for doing. And this is almost so deliberate. He is seeing God's hand of judgment against these former kings, Jeroboam and Ahab. And he has seen the godly reform that his father brought about. And he seems to overturn all of that. It's amazing. And notice this, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. The host of heaven, the angels, the chariot. God tells us in his word, don't worship angels. Who are the angels? We're told in Hebrews that they are ministering spirits to them who are the heirs of eternal life. They're not to be worshipped, but they serve the purposes of God and they serve the saints of God. We have it in the book of the Revelation. John was about to bow down to the angel and the angel said, No! This is forbidden. But what do we have? Galore. Even in our country, and I dare to say even in the Church of England now, these things are being introduced because of the pressure from Rome to be like the High Church of Rome, which is an abomination, my friends. But this is what he is doing. He served the whole host of heaven. This is a stench in the nostrils of Almighty God. One would have thought, surely, after God had destroyed 185,000 Assyrians, when Hezekiah, his father, obeyed God and trusted in the living God, that this son would have feared God. But no. No, not at all. So defiant. One would have thought that his heart and mind would have been resolved to serve and to honor God. Not so. What is this? This, my friends, is just the picture of every human heart. By nature, we are children of wrath. And unless God changes the heart, the heart is not indifferent. Paul says the heart, natural man, is enmity. It's like a clenched fist in the face of God. I will not. I'll do it my way. And we have this young man. And for 55 years, he reigned as king. Instead, we see an open and deliberate, utter defiance of the living God. Notice verse 4, against the one true and living God. And he built altars in the house of the Lord. Can you believe it? He put altars to these, as it were, unknown gods, who were not really gods, in the house of God. As it were, trying to slam it in the face of Almighty God. Of which the Lord said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts. He didn't just stop there. There was altars for the whole host of heaven. I mean, any God you wanted was there. 
angels and everything else? Again, do we not have it in our day? Where everything else but the true God is adored and worshipped. Here we have open and systematic attempt to overthrow the worship, the true worship of the living God. And this is not acceptable. And it's done in the sight of God. Not as if God didn't notice it. And the long-suffering of God is amazing in all of it. It truly is. But you know, do not tempt the Lord your God. We're told if you just turn there to Exodus 20, and you notice in verse 21, And the Lord spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The Lord has said it plainly. One God. There can only be one God. Other gods are just the imaginations of men's hearts. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, nothing carved with the hands, nothing fashioned, nothing, nor any likeness of anything that is in heaven. Don't even fashion an angel. Don't make any object the object of your worship, or that is in the earth or beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. Why? For I, the Lord, am a jealous God. That is, he is jealous for his glory. God made the heavens and the earth. Not these things that you make with your hands. All these things that you concoct with your little brain. To make to be a God. Or what men make. You're insulting God. And you're heaping up his judgment, my friend, upon your soul. This is what the Lord is saying. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. This is iniquity. Yeah, but somebody says, yeah, well, pastor, what about being sensitive to other religions? My friend, God says this is sin. And it's deserving of wrath. So he builds these altars for Bar and a whole host of heaven in the house of God. It's not a small thing. We have this today with relics in the church, objects, hosts of angels, Marys, crucifixes, you name it. I've seen it. I was raised in it. And I don't say that I'm any better. But God opened my eyes to see the sin of it all. Verse 6, and he made his son pass through the fire. Now, much is to be debated. There was the false god Molech. The children weren't always necessarily thrown into the fire. Some suggest that there were, as they went through the fire, there were fires burning and there were these hands that were so whited this metal that was heated to an excruciatingly high temperature and sometimes the children were burnt. That may be the case. We don't know the full, but we know that many children were sacrificed in that fire. It's unspeakable, isn't it? We're told here he made his son 
to pass. If you read to Second uh, Chronicles 33, verse 6, it says, And he calls his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. So his children. Whether the son came out alive, we don't know. They were all destroyed, we don't know. But it's just a wicked thing, isn't it? That's all we have to say on this. It doesn't bear thinking. Well, we must think on it. But let's not ponder it too much. We notice through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Now that was a place of death, smelling, putrid. There was refuge and waste in that place. He also observed times there and used enchantments and used witchcraft and dealt with familiar spirit and with wizards. He wrought much evil in the sight of the Lord and we told there to provoke him to anger. Whether that was deliberate or not, we just simply don't know. But it, it did provoke God to anger. Terrible, isn't it? Now, there was an explicit warning about this false worship to cause your children to walk through the fire. In Leviticus 18, verse 21, we're told there, And thou shalt not let any of thy seed pass through the fire to Molech, neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God, for I am the Lord. Now think of the abomination. Your child is made in the image of God. It's an abomination. This is all satanic, really, the heart of it. You who are made in the image of God, why would you offer up that which is made in the image of God to that which is false? That's what Satan wants. Let me say families here. Husbands and fathers, we should raise our children in the nurture of the word. In the word. Children, that's what you need. When mom and dad sit you down after dinner or early in the morning for family devotions, do you realize that is the most important thing of the day? Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And God has spoken. He's given his word. We don't add to it. What you need is the word. What you need, you who are made in the image of God, is God to renew you, to save you, to bring you to see that without him you are lost and you will worship everything else in this world if you live for yourself. What will it profit a young man if he gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Do you realize, children, if you're in a Christian home, you're in the best home that you could ever be in. Your parents may not have a whole lot of money may not be able to buy you this and that and the things that you want. And thank God for that, because those things can spoil you. This young king had everything, and he kicked against it. Don't kick against the word of God, because it will be your destruction. It really will be. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Do not provoke the Lord. He's far stronger than you. 
children, far stronger than anyone. Verse 7 and 8, what we have here is we have an emphasis on the deliberate profaning of the temple. Verse 7, and notice he brings a graven image here in the house of God. Don't ever do this. Don't ever do this. And he set a graven image of the grove that he had made in the house, of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. God's name is his character. He is holy. He is just. These other gods were capricious, ever changing their minds. God is a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy, isn't he? Neither will I make the feet of Israel move any more out of the land of land which I gave their fathers. This is a promise saying, if you honor me in my house, you're safe here. I will preserve you. I'll take care of you. You just honor me. Don't do your own thing. Only if they will observe to do all, according to all that I've commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. Well, we read part, didn't we, there of Exodus chapter 20 where we read the first commandment, thou shall have no other gods, and then the second commandment, thou shall not make a false or graven image. You see, safety comes from the Lord. And safety comes from obeying him. You do your own thing. You destroy yourself. And you bring down God's judgment. Now notice, as we saw there in verse 7 eight, and 8, there's a conditional promise of God that they would dwell in the land if they honored his name. Now we read in the prayer meeting this morning from Ephesians 6, that children, if you honor your parents, it'll be well with you and you'll live a long time. God can cut your life off. Disobedience to parents, God doesn't take lightly. And disobedience to him, he especially doesn't take lightly. You obey your parents. It's the first promise we're told. It's the first commandment with a promise. Promises you will live long. God will determine your days or he'll take you away from this world. Well, that promise was seen in 2 Samuel 7, verse 13. Well, notice something else. In verse 9, what we see is Manasseh's sins now far exceeded the sins of other nations. But they hearkened not, that is the people, and even the priests, by the way, they are complicit in this sin. They allowed it. And even the people of Judah, they tolerated. They could have stood up against Manasseh. You know, we are to obey authorities, but not to the point where the authorities tell us to disobey God. But they hearkened not, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. You read there, more evil than did the nations. The nations practiced these things. Now, why was it more evil? Well, because, firstly, 
they had more light. Judah and Israel had the word of God. The other nations didn't have the word of God. And so therefore with the word of God and you, you go against it, it's greater evil. Do you not see that? It's true. Paul, when he speaks concerning the Jews of the Old Testament in Romans 3, he says, what advantage hath the Jew over the Gentile? Or what profit is there in circumcision? He says, much every way. Chiefly, he says, in this way, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. They had these special things of God's word. They had the tabernacle, they had the word, they had the law, they had everything. They had great advantage, and therefore more guilt was upon them because they had truth. That's why they sinned more. Same with Judas Iscariot. Guilty of so much. Although what he did was terrible. And although the people cried, crucify him, crucify him. Judas was with the Lord Jesus for three years. And yet he betrayed him. You know, there is greater judgment where there is more light given. Although the Lord may not convert or although he may not regenerate somebody. Don't think you're off the hook, my friend. Because the Bible does clearly, so clearly and so solemnly teach that to whom much is given, much will be required. We have it, don't we, in Matthew 11, when the Lord Jesus, after he's done all of his miracles in uh, Chorazin and, and uh, Bethsaida, and he's done many mighty works, he says there, in Matthew eleven twenty one, 21, Woe unto thee, Chorias, and woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, these other cities where I didn't preach and do mighty miracles, than for you in the day of judgment. You will not escape. There's also that passage, isn't there, in Luke 12, where the Lord Jesus Christ describes two servants. One knew who, what he had to do, and he'd been told very clearly what he had to do. And we're told there in verse 47, and the servant which knew the Lord's will, and prepared not himself, he didn't prepare himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. In other words, more light, more accountability. Don't say, ah, oh, well, I'm not saved. God's not given me a new heart. It doesn't matter. You sin. God will judge you for it. Well, then we have the sins of Manasseh. And you notice... So far, when we think of these sins, apart from the causing his sons to go through the fire, most of these sins are sins against God. Now, it's a terrible thing to send your children into the fire. But God is more concerned about dishonor to him. Do you realize that all sins flow out of this one great big sin? 
When you don't put God first, you live like a fool in this world. And you ruin your children. And you ruin your life, young people. To not love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind is not to be not a blessing to other people. When you live for yourself, you not only destroy yourself, but you destroy others. To love God means I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie to God. I'm not going to lie to my fellow men. I'm not going to be adulterous. I'm not going to be unkind. Because God says I must be kind. Because God says I must obey him. That is what it is. You see, the, the commandments are all connected. They are one. And let me say, all sins flow out of this one sin. To not honor God as God. When people walk away from God, watch the abortions start to happen. Watch the crime rate go up. That's what happens. Secondly, you notice, notice it says, but they hearken not, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil. And by the way, it's not, as we will see, there was a lot of blood here in Jerusalem, as never seen before. There's violence. There's hatred. You see, when, when a, a man is not living for God, he lives an empty life, a vain life. Now, long-suffering, secondly. And the Lord spake by his servants, the prophets. That's, that's long-suffering there. Let me put it to you this way. The fact that God had not sent this nation now into oblivion and completely destroyed them and did what he did to Israel, to them, what did he do to Israel? He allowed the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, to come in, take them away, send them, distribute them amongst the nations and send foreigners in the land. The Lord didn't do that here, but he sends prophets. He sends prophets to who? To Judah, who weren't worthy of it. This is the long-suffering of the Lord, isn't it? Well, what prophets? Well, a number of them. Hosea, Joel, Isaiah, Habakkuk. All of these prophets came. If you study the chapters, the surrounding chapters, all of these prophets, they were speaking, 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 speaking. But they despised the prophets because they despised the Lord. The prophets came with a word. In 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15, we have it. And the Lord God their Father sent to them by his messengers, rising up, betimes and sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. The Lord had compassion. This is the long-suffering of the Lord. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words. Let me ask you today, do you think we're severe as a church? Do you think I'm severe as a pastor? God is severe. God is severe. I must warn you, God does not tolerate sin. The message is a woeful one. And the fact that these prophets and teachers came and the people didn't listen 
Remember what the Lord said? They despised the prophets and all that they entreated them with. And finally, 586 BC, the judgment came. Now, notice the warning of the judgment at verse 11. Well, it would be as never as Judah had seen before. There would be an unprecedented judgment. Verse 11, because Manasseh, king of Judah, hath done these abominations and hath done wickedly above all that the Amorites did, which were before him, and hath made Judah to, to sin with his idols. Therefore thus saith the Lord, here's the judgment, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing such an evil upon Jerusalem and Judah that whosoever heareth of it, and that's going to be now, but also in the future, after it has happened, both his ears shall tingle. It will be such a ringing in the ears. It will have left such an impression upon men that God does not tolerate indifference to his word and what he commands. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria. Think of what happened in Samaria. He's saying it's going to be the same line. It's the line of judgment, the line of demarcation, and the plummet of the house of Ahab. This is biblical language to say that, remember the plummet, remember how Ahab, his house was, was destroyed. God is saying, I am going to bring destruction and will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. You can imagine a man, he's so hungry. He takes a plate and he eats everything on the plate and he even ends up licking it like an animal and turns it upside down and says, I'm finished. God says, this is what I'm going to do. We know what happened in Jerusalem. The temple was desecrated. All the houses were burnt. The fields set on fire. The Babylonians came in and took everything away. And for 70 years, one never would have imagined that this nation would exist, would continue to exist. But God did send them in mercy back. That is amazing. They said in that psalm, we were like men that dreamed. We couldn't dream God was sending us back. He was so far gone. That's the mercy of God though. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. Ten tribes are now lost. But this is going to be severe, what will happen? He will not ultimately forsake. But we notice in verse 14, this needs explaining carefully. And I will forsake the remnant of mine house, of mine inheritance. Think of it. The inheritance was the 12 tribes. And here the, the remnant is, God is saying, is oh, I'm going to forsake Judah, but not in the ultimate sense. What he's going to do, he's going to send them away for 70 years into captivity, and notice, and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. Now, many would go into Babylon and not want to return again. I don't know if you know that. Many went into Babylon, and it was a foreign land, and they loved it. For some of them that went there, well, they're just going back into the world. This is lovely. But there were those who loved the Lord. 
who longed to be back. Because they loved the Lord. They were the true remnant. They loved the Lord. Verse 16. What we have here is the continued sin of Manasseh. It's mentioned how he sinned against men as well now. This is the second table of the law. Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much. You see, when a man walks away from God, not just him, but others too, a nation is destroyed. There's no morals. There's no conscience before God. Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, beside his sin wherewith he made Judah to sin. Now Judah sinned. Do you see that here in the text? It's not as if Judah and the people of Jerusalem were not guilty. They were complicit in this. They could have stood against him. But he seduced them. And you know we can be seduced by others, but it doesn't excuse us. It doesn't excuse us. In doing which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, we need to seek to try to draw to a conclusion here as we draw near to the chapter as it closes. Now, the rest of the Acts of Manasseh, verse 17, and all that he did, and his sin that he sinned, are they not written in the book of Chronicles? And we'll turn there in a moment. And uh, what we have, so we have his death, and then where he slept, in the garden of Uzzah. Now, from verse 19 to 26, which we'll come back to in a moment, is that life of his son, Ammon, who reigned in his stead, who was as wicked, not as wicked, but was wicked too. And then we have Josiah, the godly king, who God raises up. But I want you to turn. We may be asking the question this morning, hold on a minute, but I've heard about Manasseh, now, how the Lord changed him. Now, there was a complete turning of him. And you might be asking that question, why is that not mentioned here in the book of 2 Kings? And that's a good question. I'm going to come and deal with that in a moment. But if you just turn for the moment with me to chapter 33 of 2 Chronicles. I've just been saying that there is a strange silence here about this turning of Manasseh, how he sought the Lord, how he repented. And what the Lord did, and even Manasseh being taken away into Babylon. And remember, it was his father, Hezekiah, that showed the men of Babylon, oh, look at, look at the gold, look at the silver. But we read, where's Manasseh taken? Verse 10, and the Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people. Second Chronicles 33, 10. But they would not hearken. Wherefore, in other words, in light of the fact they didn't listen, the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound them with fetters and carried him to Babylon. He was carried to Babylon. The kings of the Assyria came, took him to Babylon. And when he was in affliction, verse 12, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him 
and he was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. That amazing. One would never have thought this. This is amazing. Notice several things. Verse 12, how he humbled himself. Of course, ultimately, the Lord was humbling him. The Lord allowed him to be taken away into Babylon by the Assyrians. And it says when he was taken away, when he was in affliction, verse 12, he besought the Lord his God. I was just saying to the young people this morning in the Sabbath school how when the people came out of Egypt, they went to Marah, and they complained bitterly against Moses. We've got no water to drink. But one thing they didn't do is they didn't pray to God. They just complained, but God had already parted the Red Sea for them, were all the plagues upon Egypt, but they never prayed. But Moses prayed, and here Manasseh prays. My friend, sinners pray, because they have no other help but God. And God hears the prayer of the brokenhearted. Here is one that has sinned, it seems, almost every sin against God and against humanity and cried out to God. And God heard him. That's amazing. That God should ever hear him. That God should ever have mercy upon him. Verse 13, and he prayed unto him and was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. My, he didn't deserve it, did he? Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. That's what it says. And you notice that all of this false worship now comes to an end. You notice in verse 17 we read, Nevertheless, the people did sacrifice still in the high places, yet unto the Lord, their God only. Now, let me just press home a couple of things. Here we have a king here now, and he seems to stop everything, and he knows that God is God indeed. He's humble before the Lord. But the people don't change. And this reminds us, you see, that grace does not run through a nation. Grace, as we will see, doesn't even run in the family line. We see his son, Ammon. He's as wicked as he is, was. Some people think, if only God could open King Charles's eyes, the nation will change. England will change. It won't change. England won't change if God opens one man's eyes. God has to open up individual people's eyes. God has to humble individuals. Don't think. This is how the Armenian thinks. Ah, oh, if that person in the church could be converted, then everybody else will. My friend, you don't have the slightest conception of salvation and the depravity of a man's heart if you think like that. Look at Israel. 
It continues on in its sin. I say Israel, Judah. It carries on, doesn't it? Therefore, if we're saved, it should humble us. We're no better than Manasseh. This was the grace of God. It was a few years ago. And I remember, you know, people trying to introduce and even push into our circles, just invite some celebrity to speak on how the Lord has changed their life. Oh my then, we're going to see mighty revival in the church. Let's get some superstar soccer player. Let's get some, uh, one who was a hippie, a singer. Oh no, he's come to Christ. Oh, we'll see a massive revival. You won't. You won't. Man is dead in trespasses and sins. Until God makes him alive, he'll remain in that state. Manasseh's conversion did not turn away men from serving vanity. And it did not turn away God's anger from Judah and Jerusalem. It still came. It's a reminder to us. Yes, we pray God will humble. And sometimes a godly witness is a wonderful thing. And God can use the means. But remember this, that God is the primary means of any change in a man's heart. Unless God moves, a man will be lost forever. Now, again, it doesn't excuse you. It's a mercy that Manasseh was saved. And it's a mercy if we are saved. Look at Manasseh's son, Amnon, verse 19. And Amnon was 20 and two years old when he began to reign. He reigned two years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Meshulamah, the daughter of Haroz of Jotbah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. You would have thought that this young man would have been humbled by his father being taken away. And all the evil that he did to his children and to the nation, but not a thing. Not a thing. Young people, listen to your parents if they're saved. Humble yourself. God is not a respecter of persons. And you don't come with some new idea and some new invention. God does not tolerate sin. But he is gracious to the humble, the man that will humble himself. He will lift up. Now you notice he forsook the Lord, his fathers, forsook the Lord, God of his fathers, verse 22, and walked in the way of the Lord, walked not in the way of the Lord, and the servants of Ammon conspired against him and slew the king in his own house. My, that's the judgment of God. Protection comes from the Lord. Do you remember what I quoted there from Ephesians 6? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for it shall be well with thee, and thou shalt live many days. You don't. You don't especially obey God 
judgment comes. But notice God's mercy, finally. He does not deny his sovereign election and his goodness and kindness to the people of his covenant. Notice after Amnon dies in the verse 26, after he was buried in his own garden, Josiah, his son, reigned in his stead. And it's a complete opposite to his father. A godly young man. Didn't follow in the way of his father. That's an example. Again, grace does not run in the family. You cannot deny God's sovereign election and his mercy. But if we acknowledge it, how thankful we are. Why was I made to see, O Lord? Well, he says it was my good pleasure. That's what he says in Ephesians. For it was according, he has chosen us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Not only that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, but according to the good pleasure of his will. Father, thou hast hidden these things from the prudent and the wise, but hast revealed them unto babes. God has to make us, as it were, babes. God has to humble us. Manasseh had to be brought, as it were, to a simple childlike faith in the Lord. And it was the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus, by his Spirit revealing these things. And he works today that we might walk in God's way as we hear his word. I close with these words in Psalm 76. And we're reminded, the wrath of man shall praise thee. The psalmist is saying, Lord, Psalm 76, 10. The wrath of man shall praise thee. Man may get up. Look at Manasseh. He gets up, as it were, on his hind legs. And says, I'm going to do these things. I don't care what God thinks. The wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. Thank the Lord that Manasseh, I mean, he, he stands out as a great trophy of God's grace, doesn't he? Where sin doth abound, grace does much more abound. The wrath of Manasseh. Ends up praising God. And God restrains the remainder of wrath. The wrath that was due to his people was poured upon Christ, my friend. My sins. The sins of all God's elect. Paul's sins. Paul. Paul persecuting the church. Paul. Paul stopped one day. Paul saved. Once Saul of Tarsus, now the Apostle Paul, a monument of God's grace. Young people, kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Amen.